Welcome to episode 40 of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, the podcast where we discuss and examine the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. And joining us once again is half of the Fantastic Cast, half of Hey Kids Comics, a third of Listen to the Prophets, and more, Mr. Andrew Leyland. Welcome back, Andrew. Thank you. Hello. It's nice to be back. I'm talking about the Fantastic Four again. It's my lot in life. Yeah. <laughs> Here's a comic with the Fantastic Four in. Talk about that. Okay. It helps when it's a good one, doesn't it? Yeah, I was going to say, at least here we're cherry-picking the good ones. Yeah. There's no strange tales here. We are here to talk about one of the two things that were actually good coming out of Secret Wars 2. <laughs> So we are here for Fantastic Four 285 Hero, written and penciled by John Byrne, inked by Al Gordon, colored by Glynis Wine, lettered by John E. Workman, edited by Mark Carlin under Editor-in-Chief Jim Shooter, cover date December 1985, release date September 17, 1985, and it came in at number 40 in the countdown. So we'll get into details about it just as soon as we hear this plug for one of Andrew's shows. Plug all of the shows. Hey, Michael. Hey, Dad. We need to record another new trailer. Another one? Yes. You know that we read comics and then talk about comics, because as we've established, talking about comics you've not read is just dumb. Yeah, and you make me do it every Thursday. Well, we've moved. Have we? Yes, we have outgrown our old location. I don't feel like I've moved. And we have now moved to twotruefreaks.com. What was that again? Twotruefreaks.com. Hey, kids, comics. Still, every Thursday... Here at Quarks, customer satisfaction is our primary concern. I'd say we just found our way into a wormhole. I'm Kira Norris. Lieutenant Commander Worf reporting for duty, sir. To the best crew any captain ever had. This may be the last time we're all together. This will shortly become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. For Starfleet, one of our most important posts. It is quite simply, Commander, the journey you have always been destined to take. Sensors are not functioning. You've lost all contact with the space station. What the hell is happening out there? Shields up. <laughs> Damage report. Battle stations. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Listen to the prophets. A Deep Space Nine Two True Freaks presentation with Sean Engel and Andrew Layla. And now with 100% more Paul Spataro. The Fantastic Arts is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics in 1961 onwards. Each week, Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover every issue, spin-off, guest appearance and cameo, and more. And in 2015, we begin our journey through the decade that tastes forgot the 1970s. Join us as we take a look at... The departure of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. The Kree Skrull War. The arrival of Marvel Team-Up. Bill Murray as the Human Torch. Creators including Roy Thomas, George Perez, Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway, Rich Buckler and John Byrne. And of course, Marvel 2-in-1. All this and more at ffcast.libsyn.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Insert catchy tagline here. Wait, what? (laughs) 
and we're back. So this is Fantastic Four 285 from the John Byrne run with the Secret Wars 2 crossover. And that's some of the significance of the issue, but I don't know, aside from the fact that it was John Byrne, that any of that have any reason to do with the fact that it's on this list. Uh, I don't think so. I think that this is just a very good story. Byrne has offered to redraw portions of it for reprints to remove the Beyonder and put the Watcher in instead. So the fact that it's a Secret Wars 2 crossover in what is generally considered to be one of his best single issues is very irksome to him, because he hates Secret Wars 2. As a lot of creators did. As we mentioned earlier, there's two good things, I think, that came out of Secret Wars 2. There's this and the New Mutants tie-in issues. And this feels kind of like the New Mutants, where if you're reading the New Mutants tie-in, he has exposition in great detail, telling you everything that you'd be missing if you're not reading the Secret Wars book but no real additional support if you're not reading Uncanny X-Men. <laughs> I liked the Daredevil Secret Wars 2 crossover. Yeah, that, that was good too, but I tend to always like Daredevil. That wasn't a bad one, where Matt gets his sight back. Yeah, and the good news is at no point did you know the Human Torch or the New Mutants or Matt Murdock have to teach the Beyonder how to poop. <laughs> Peter Parker always getting the crappy end of the stick. Yeah, speaking of the crappy ends of the sticks, this issue opens with a nurse trying to write up a report on a deceased patient. And this is one where she feels she needs to go into much greater detail than normal. Uh, it's a 13-year-old by the name of Thomas H. Hansen, who died because of third-degree burns, at least as far as the official medical cause of death is concerned. But, you know, that's kind of like saying a 95-year-old died of heart failure, you know, or a drunk driver dies of severe trauma. There's a lot more to the story than just third-degree burns. So from here, we cut to a flashback of Tommy's story, where we find out that he is such a huge Human Torch fan that even being able to have access to an interview in a magazine he hasn't seen before that's still in print and can easily be bought, he's willing to trade a month's worth of lunch money and do someone else's homework just to get that magazine from him. And it distracted him enough in class because he was reading that instead of doing the work that his teacher ended up confiscating it and throwing it away as per school rules. We see shortly after that this teacher understands that he's got, you know, a, a huge appreciation of the Human Torch, and she's concerned that it might even be a little bit too much. And he explains why the Human Torch is the greatest hero ever. The teacher starts to understand that, yeah, maybe he doesn't have active parental figures. And as we go home, we see that that's true. He's checking voicemail, and, you know, his mom leaves him a note saying, yeah, dinner's in the refrigerator, they'll be home around 11.30. Oh, please set the VCR to record their show, which means he's missing out on that Human Torch interview to do that. He tries calling the Avengers and speaks to Jarvis briefly, and that's actually partly because the Avengers are staying with them, I believe, at this point. Yeah, the Fantastic Four are rooming with the Avengers after the destruction of the Baxter building. Yeah, yeah, that's the one of the few points in this issue, that and the appearance of the Beyonder are really the only two that can tell you at what point in continuity this was. So if you're willing to accept those, you can read this in isolation and it'll work pretty well. Uh, from there, Tommy heads upstairs to see a buddy of his in the same apartment building who's been experimenting with remote control planes, and he warns Tommy to stay away from the rocket fuel that he's been concocting for himself, because you know, if you don't watch out with that, it can turn you into another human torch. We cut from there to, you know, Reed overseeing the construction of the what we will eventually learn is the Four Freedoms Plaza. I don't know if it's been named yet at this stage. Uh, I don't think that it had, no. Uh, but essentially it is their new base, and Dr. Janet Darling, who we saw earlier, has come to talk to him, and to explain to Johnny what has happened. So Johnny comes to visit Tommy. They don't know why he set himself on fire. They just know that, you know, he's a huge Human Torch fan. It would mean a lot to him to lift his spirits if he could visit the Human Torch. And when Johnny finds out 
yeah, one of your huge fans is in a burn ward and is not expected to make it. He'd like to see you, you know, be there sometime within a week. To Johnny's credit, he says, well, let's go now. And he's right there. But he is rather shocked when he goes to talk to Tommy and finds out that Tommy set himself on fire to be like Johnny. So this is one of the moments where, you know, Johnny is forced to kind of grow up a little bit. Now, unfortunately, Johnny's history in the Human Torch every or in the Fantastic Four seems like every time a new writer comes on, he ages backwards again. So they could tell that story of him growing up and help him mature a little bit. But this actually worked well. Tommy's parents understandably freak out and blame Johnny for their son's accident. It's to the point where he doesn't even fly home. He takes a taxi and goes to see Alicia. And those of you who recall from the first Secret Wars, the thing stayed on Battleworld, and now Johnny and Alicia are a couple. She-Hulk is present because she took over the thing's spot on the team, and Alicia's making a statue of her. And Johnny's essentially blaming himself for Tommy's death. And then the Beyonder appears out of nowhere. And, you know, She-Hulk tries to restrain him, because that's the kind of character she is, so the Beyonder just teleports himself and Johnny out of there. Now, if John Byrne were to redraw this with the Watcher, he'd probably have to redraw that She-Hulk moment too, I would say. Yeah, he'd probably have to change some of the dialogue in the construction work bit as well. Yeah, uh, but in any event, the Beyonder takes Johnny Storm back to before Tommy burned himself to the child's bedroom so he can see how much joy his fandom of the Human Torch brought him and that it was one of the few high points in the boy's life. So we cut from there back to the hospital where we see Dr. Janet Darling wrapping up her report on it and, you know, talking about, yeah, it's, you know, maybe Tommy had a happy ending after all. And that's pretty much the issue. I don't know that I agree he had a happy ending. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Poor guy. I think this is especially considering the Beyonder was forced on Burn and every other creator working at Marvel at the time. Everything up to that last page works great. Yeah. Yeah, everything about this story is really quite touching. It's got the same basic premise as another story that made the list, The Kid Who Collected Spider-Man, which is, it was quite, reading it last night for this, I was like, this is pretty much the same idea as that issue. So it seems very strange that both that story and this one have ended up on the top 75 Marvels. What do Marvel readers have against kids? Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Although I think, Maybe the reason the Spider-Man story landed higher on the list is because that wasn't anything the kid chose to do to yeah, himself. Yeah, that's true. The, the, that's a much more... Oh, I was going to say tragic, but this is a tragic story as well. That, that's... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know the difference. I don't know where I was going with that. It just seemed very odd when I was reading this last night that both these stories have ended up on the list, despite having the same basic idea. I, do, I love the art in this. I, I was a big fan of Al Gordon inking John Byrne when this was coming out when I was, uh, when was this 85 did you say? 85, So I'll have been 12 when this was coming out, 12 or 13 and uh, I think Al Gordon was one of his best inkers. I don't know what Byrne thinks of Al Gordon because he has very strong opinions on the people that ink his work he's not a big fan of Bob Layton so I don't know what he thinks about Al Gordon and Al Gordon didn't do too many issues of the Fantastic Four but I think he was an excellent inker. I think the only thing that hurts this really is the colouring's a bit met in places. But again, there's not really a lot that Glynis Oliver can do about the, the palette that she has available in 80s comics. But the inking's gorgeous. The yeah. art's brilliant throughout. It's some of Byrne's best artwork, particularly his normal stuff, which he excelled at in the Fantastic Four. The first panel of page one is just Dr. Darling stood in her office, and it's a real office. There's clutter on her desk, there's mm-hmm. filing cabinets, there's box files, 
kind of tippling over. There's all of her doctorate certificates on the walls, and she's just looking outside across New York, and that's a lovely panel. There are various different lovely panels throughout the entire issue. The splash page, which is just Tommy getting stuff out of his locker at school. Every single person there is a real person. There's some lovely 80s bits as well. The girl stood just to the left of the guy who's bullying him has got magnificent Cindy Lauper her. So there's some great 80s touches to it that kind of date it a little bit now. But for the most part, I think this is some very strong artwork mm-hmm. from him. Yeah, and even the teacher, if you look at the teacher that he's drawn, that's not 80s attire for the teacher, that's 70s mm-hmm. attire. <laughs> it's almost the stereotypical, the teacher's 10 years yes, behind. Yes, well, we are, aren't we? <laughs> a lot of that is the impression you get from the U.S., and quite frankly, the way the U.S. pays their teachers, there's probably a reason <laughs> they're still wearing the clothes they bought 10 years ago. Yeah, so the only, I mean, the issue I had with this when I was reading it, I thought, well, why doesn't he just go out and buy his own copy of Celebrity Magazine? But the guy does say, did you ever <laughs> see this issue of Celebrity? So the implication I got from that is this is an older issue and not one he could just go okay. and buy off. Because I had the exact same thought you did. Why does he just go and buy his own copy? And the fact that he said, I've never even heard of this one. Surely you'd have heard of one that was on the stands this month. So that was my thinking. Yeah. And it, there's a wonderful little moment there in this era of the internet cataloging everything, that there's an article that Tommy's never heard of. And there is something really mm-hmm. cool about discovering... I, I had it relatively recently. I was leafing through some old British superheroes monthly comics by DC and there was a Michael Golden Batman strip in there that I didn't even know existed and suddenly you're like wow there's a Michael Golden Batman story I've never read how awesome is that so to actually get Tommy B I, I didn't even know this existed I've got to have it gimme 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 you, that's that's very relatable <laughs> or it was to me anyway oh, yeah. so I thought that was quite nice yeah it's I remember my reaction when I was just downloading the comics they had free for promotion on Comixology and found a Brian Michael Bendis Batman story. Oh yeah, he did um, he did an issue of Legends of the Dark Knight. Yeah, he yeah, he was uh, one story in an anthology yeah. issue. So that's quite it's always so, so, cool when stuff like that happens. So yeah, that's I guess that will date it a bit as well, but I think, yeah, but it, that worked for the emotion of the story. So I don't mind. That doesn't date it anywhere near as much as the clothes and his teachers no. her on the next page. When she's yeah. teaching uh, Robert Frost to them, and uh, that's that's not good. Her, yeah. she's got like a short, close cropped scalp, and then a, a bun mullet at the back. Yeah, it's uh, it frankly reminds me of a poodle. But... Yes, it is a bit poodly. There is no way in in on God's green earth we, we would nowadays be allowed to confiscate something and just chuck it in a bin. That no. that would not happen. No, it's the 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 harshest I've heard anyone get away with, and even that is with some defense is. You know, you'll get this back at the end of the school year. Yeah, we're normally end of the day. You come back and get it at the end of the yeah. day. There's, but there's no way we would be allowed to take personal property off something and throw it away. Oh, so yeah. no chance. I don't know whether that... I, I don't remember, even in the 80s when I was at school, I don't remember if they were allowed to do that. If the, if the teacher took property off you, you went and got it from either from them, and they normally gave you detention, or they would put it in reception for you to pick up at the end of the day. But I, yeah, that's the way it worked for me, and I was—I had just turned eight when this came out. So, so. I, I can't imagine that she would be allowed to chuck it in the bin. I mean, again, it kind of works for the story, but that that's the biggest stretch of credibility. <laughs> and I love it when stuff like that happens, when you've got a superhero story, people who can cling to walls and fly, and the biggest credibility gap is something like, no, there is no way that teacher would be allowed to throw his personal property in the dustbin. And it's little things like that that just take you out of a story. 
Yeah, well, it's it's not the thing you agreed to buy into when you picked it yeah. up. Yeah. Right. It's the unexpected thing you have to buy into. Yeah, and it's, so it's it is quite unusual. And it's 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 talking as well. There's an interesting panel at the bottom of that page where she's saying, you know, I understand what you're going through. You don't actually have a crush on the Human Torch, and he's no, no, but he's great. He's real. He's and it's you've got to then put yourself into, yeah. Well, what would a world that has all these people in it be like then? You know, you've got guys who can just turn flame on and have saved the world from Galactus. And I, I don't care what Jim Shooter says, that is not the world outside our window. It is a completely different world that has Reed Richards in it. Yeah, it has confirmation of alien contact, mm. which some people claim we have now. I I am far from convinced. It's, it's a far cry from the evidence that some people say we have now to a big purple dude in a skirt rocking up to the middle of New York and saying, I'm going to eat your planet. And then a, a, an Oscar on a, sil- a surfboard saving our lives. That's a completely different level of alien contact. Yeah, or scrolls out in the middle of Times Square, or gladiators showing yeah. up. I mean, there's just so many invasions from undeniable invasions from instances. Atlantis and, yeah. So yeah, so that that was quite nice. How do how does it affect people on the street? And it's a, it's one of those rarities in in Burns Run as well, in that there is no Fantastic Four appearance for the entire first half of this comic. There's no omniscient narrator. There's no thought balloons. It's a very modern feeling comic. While I was reading it last night, one of the things that hit me was that it is all dialogue, and there's none of there's no even this thought process stuff that Frank Miller did and Jeff Loeb did to death in Superman Batman of analysing mm-hmm. the thoughts of each character. He he doesn't get into the heads of anyone using thought balloons or anything like that. No, he does it well through dialogue, especially when Johnny comes back and he's sort of pouring his heart out to Alicia and, and She-Hulk, mm. right? But again, that's it's natural dialogue. So you get the character analysis without feeling heavy-handed, without feeling like, let me analyze it for you and then lay it out in black and white for the yeah. reader. It's natural-sounding dialogue that allows you to draw conclusions quite easily. It is one of those things you can go back and look at some of Burns' stuff from this era and later, well into the 90s, and it's very overwritten. And this isn't. This is all just expertly done. And just the the art tells a story as well. Tommy's quite a small kid for his age, which lends to being picked mm-hmm. on. His house is immaculate with art on the walls. And then we learn what his parents do, kind of, for a living. So from this one page where Tommy gets home and has to tape whatever show he gets asked to tape, we learn that he comes from a reasonable amount of money, or he comes from a family that's fairly well off, yet they're never home for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, he's making friends with the guys yeah, upstairs. Yeah, he's, he's like... friends with the guy on the roof who's making up bizarre fuel. I do like anyone can just phone Avengers Mansion. <laughs> and I, there's a brilliant panel of Jarvis serving lemonade to Hercules. <laughs> I love that. Hercules stood in the background mm-hmm. like, forsooth, verily, I doth require my lemonade, friend Jarvis. <laughs> and, oh, yes. and the wasp is just stood around in the background as well. And you just have this image of, so that's what you do when you're not being Avengers. You just hang around the mansion. Maybe there's a reality TV show in the Marvel mm-hmm. Universe. It doesn't film them being heroic. It's just um, occupiers of Avengers Mansion. That's what you can call it. And it's just cameras all over the mansion filming them when they're not being superheroes. Well, that would probably work better than the reality show that the New Warriors had before Civil War. <laughs> it probably wouldn't have that ending. That would be most unfortunate if Avengers Mansion blew up on camera, wouldn't it? Yeah, although it's it's not entirely unlikely. <laughs> The middle of the book's probably the only... It's not a weak point. 
you get this guy who's concocted this special jet fuel for uh, this aeroplane that he's invented. And he says it'll break every law in the book. And later on, we learn that he's been arrested and put in jail for it. And I thought, that's a bit of an overreaction. Would he get arrested and put in jail so quickly for doing this? Would he not be, like, charged with... Because he didn't set the kid on fire. Yeah, it's with the time frames they're talking about, the US legal system does not move that quickly. Well, that's what I'm, I'm, I'm even asking. Would he get put in jail for this? I think it might depend on the... They might do it to sort of buckle the public reaction. Mm. Because right. they make it quite clear that he turns himself in. Yeah, because th- this could be could be construed as reckless endangerment resulting in death. And you know, at least here in North America, there are laws against that. But it's it'd have to be a little more extreme than this, I would think, before they'd really go through. Unless, as I said, there's a lot of public pressure. Mm. But we don't get any of that. We don't know if there was any public pressure. Although we do know that his parents are fairly well off. So in lieu of being able to blame the Fantastic Four... Or certainly the Human Torch, maybe they pinned it all on this poor guy. Yeah. I mean, the dialogue does say that his fuel violated every fire regulation you'd care to name. And he does have it in a public building. Yeah. So it could have been the kind of thing that Byrne wrote in just to say the Fantastic Four are not going to get blamed for this. Right. It's being, some of the blame is going there. So he's, he wasn't arrested for the, the injuries to Tommy. He was arrested because, no, it's not legal to have that <laughs> In the there. middle of New York. Yeah, just like, you know, it would be illegal to have a pile of weapons-grade uranium in your backyard. Oh, I don't know, just having an ultimate nullifier lying around. <laughs> yeah, you've got a few years to go before you get to that Fantastic Four run. <laughs> Eleven pages in, we finally see the Fantastic Four, and you know what? We haven't missed them. That's one thing, as you said, Byrne in this era especially, he's a compelling storyteller, and he does enough to make us sympathize with Tommy and what he's going through that we almost forget that the Fantastic Four are in this book. It's, we're halfway through it before we even see them. And even here, it's a relatively mundane act of Reed is overseeing a construction site. And this is something Byrne did a mm-hmm. lot in his Fantastic Four run. The humanity side of them, the human life stuff, he tried to keep as real as possible to offset mm-hmm. the Fantastic Four stuff. So this is a real-life human drama that's happening to the Human Torch. He's fallen for Alicia Masters. That's kind of like soap opera melodramatic. So all the stuff that happened to the Fantastic Folk, Sue losing her second child, having a miscarriage, all of that is real human stuff. And he he tried very hard Mm -hmm. to not cross the Fantastic with the four and to give them real lives and make them real people. And he achieved that relatively well. I can't think of an instance where he really broke over that, apart from the Malice arc where he just has them having secret identities go completely out the window. Mm-hmm. But it's a lovely panel of Johnny arriving at the construction site. It is, and it does put the focus on Johnny as the story has been. So even though we haven't seen him on panel, they've been sort of president spirit mm. with this fan. Again, if we're talking about Berners offered to redraw this, to not have the Beyonder in it for free on reprints, then you would probably have to lose page 12 or 11, where it's just Reed and, and Johnny yeah. talking about the Beyonder, and it'd actually be pretty easy to do. If you look at the last panel of the previous page where Johnny lands and just remove that panel and bring in the back half of the bottom panel of the next page where Dr. Darling arrives and just reposition Johnny slightly, you could lose that entire page and it wouldn't matter. Because that's all it is, it's just them discussing the Beyonder. I love Reed's um, hard hat has a four on it. Oh, of course. Everything is branded. brilliant. I I would like to see a little TM next to it. And the idea that in the Marvel Universe, Reed has manufactured a brand of clothes with the four on it, and that's where he gets some money from. Because Sue would be a pretty good fashion designer. Yeah, well, I think 
at one point she designed their costumes, which is one of the few elements of the new movie that convinces me people actually read the comics. Uh, I have not seen the new movie. Uh, don't be in any rush to change oh, I'm that. Not. No, it's a uh, side note. If you want to see a great Fantastic Four movie that really captures the spirit of the comics at their best, go see The Incredibles. <laughs> so far, it's your only option. There's a good bit where Dr. Derling just walks in on the construction site to see Reed. And your first thought is, do they not have any security here? And Byrne actually addresses it in one word balloon. The the construction manager actually says, that gate should have been locked. What are you doing in here, lady? And I liked that. That was a real world thing that it's just human error that she's been able to walk onto this construction site. Because, again, I know as a kid, construction sites weren't as tightly secure as they are now. We could play on diggers when we were kids and they didn't care. But now she wouldn't be let anywhere near there. And it gives you a moment to, to let Reed do some stretchy goodness and save somebody's life. Yeah. Be nice to see one life saved in this story. Yeah, that's, that's it. That's, that's about all the superhero action we're going to get. That's pretty much all you're going to get, yeah. Johnny's hurt at this point is is not great. He's got like a bowl cut, but the the bottom half of it is shaved. So he's got a shaved head up to about halfway around the top of his head. And then that's a floppy fringe. Yeah, he's got a, a haircut that about half of my classmates had in 1985. Right, so, so there you go, that dates it a little bit again. But at the time, this was interesting, because Bird was updating it to reflect the times. Yeah, I mean, if if you swap out the Beyonder with any other appropriately omnipotent character for the times, like the Watcher, as you said before, you could take this identical script and redraw it as a comic that yeah, works. Yeah, it would still work today. A uh, lovely panel of him carrying Dr. Darling as well, which I always... I always have problems with that because Johnny's not super powered in the sense that he has super strength. Now, Dr. Darling doesn't look like she's particularly heavy, but neither's my daughter. But flying her over New York would probably tire me out a bit. Yeah, it would. It's We've seen him go much further distances. I think in its strange tales, he made it halfway across the ocean. So I'll buy that he's just got a much shorter range when he's flying someone that way. And it's the flames that and the thrust that keeps him in the air. Well, I hope he doesn't drop her, because that would be a sad ending to this story. It would He's be. got, what's his name? He's got, Byrne did a lot of this. The background panel is actually a photograph of New York. And he's, yeah, yeah, over yeah, and he's, top, he's just which, tinkered with it. Todd McFarlane would do that a lot as well. Yeah, which has two effects. I mean, one of them is that it's incredibly detailed and incredibly realistic. The other side effect is that depending on how the tinkering goes, it probably saved him a lot of time to put in that much detail. Yeah. You know, he said that, that just dropping that into the background saves him a lot of effort. But he didn't want to do like a photograph like Kirby's photo collages because he felt that it, it offset the cartooniness. So he, he kind of hit upon um, an interesting compromise with what he's done there. He's kind of like filtered it. It still looks like a photo, mm-hmm. but I don't know what he's done to it or how he did it back in 1985 because we didn't have Photoshop then, did we? Even a very early version? Not to my knowledge, but again, I was eight, so. And yet he has—he always was an app, a big Apple Mac user, an early adopter. So maybe there was a, an art package that let him do that. I don't know. There maybe looking at the the borders around Doctor Darling, it looks to me almost like he sort of done a photostat of it onto some sort of xenotape. Mm. So just you know, a, a low grade photocopier would wash out the colors, just fill the whole thing over the the black with that one light green, right. and just you know, cut out a spot to put the pencil work. Of Dr. Darling and the human yeah, torture. Yeah, and then fill it. Yeah, yeah you're right, cause especially around a her. Yeah, the hair and, and both of her arms, there's sort of like a little green yeah. aura that fits the green that the, the city's mm-hmm. colored in. So I think he cut it out and over. It's a very nice it, effect, but, though. Oh, yeah. It, it, again, adds to the realism and yeah. the grounding. And it's something 
I mean, we've talked about how like the clothing and arts and hairstyles do set it in the 80s, but that's just because Byrne was trying to keep everything but those fantastic stories as real and as detailed as possible, and that's what you'd see out the window at the time he was making mm. this. It's good. It's a good panel. The Doctor, when Johnny goes to see young Tommy in the, the hospital, he's a bit thingy <laughs> Is it okay for me to see him? Well, it can't hurt. <laughs> Cheers, Doc. I, I don't know that yeah. he'd be quite that tactless nowadays, but I don't know. No. And then Tommy dies, and it's quite yep. an interesting scene, because his mum and dad blame Johnny, even though we as readers know that they've neglected him, which is one of the themes of the story. Parental neglect can be just as devastating as abuse, and these two obviously clearly didn't have the time for their son. They were always busy at work. In fact, the mum actually hauls off and belts Johnny across the face. And he's kind of stunned because he's never met this kid. He doesn't know any of this is going on. And ultimately, this is the point of the story, isn't it? That this isn't Johnny's fault. But that that played like a real moment. That in this instance, they, they would blame mm-hmm. somebody else. Because that's one of the symptoms of grief, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's the blaming and denial. And it's even symptoms of bad parenting. A lot of times when they're neglecting it, I mean, I, I teach for my day job, too, and I can tell you there's a few parents who just refuse to take ownership for any problems they have with their kid. So, I mean, obviously we never... I don't know that we ever see these two again. I would hope that we don't. I'd hope that another writer didn't come along and, and ruin this. But that felt real, and this goes back into what we were talking about, about Byrne trying to keep the human stuff real. And the, the, it leads to the brilliant bit at the bottom of that page where Johnny partially flames on. And then decides to get a taxi rather than flying. It's a lovely moment for, you know, Johnny Storm, who was described as dumb blonde male division in an earlier issue of the Fantastic Mm -hmm. Four. And that's how he described himself. So that was a really nice touch in a story just full of really nice touches. Yeah, even at the top of the same page and the page before, just looking at the state of the clothing of Tommy's parents. So they've been neglecting him, but they do care about him. Like, you look at his dad... And this is a man with a suit and tie, but they're a wreck. Mm. Like the knot on his tie is halfway down his yeah, chest. It's a lovely touch. They've clearly been doing a vigil at this hospital. I was hospital just going to say the same thing. They've been here all night. They've possibly been here all week. Yeah, I, I, I'm not implying that they've neglected him in a way that they don't care. They clearly care about him, but they've just let the work take precedence over looking after their son by the fact that they're just not there for him. Mm-hmm. It feels more like they're, they've are they taken him for granted than anything else. Yeah, he's there to set the VCR for them. Yeah. Which is a shame. It's very sad. Very touching. And very well done as well. Mm-hmm. And again, with an issue like this, it's got to be executed well so it doesn't feel like it's beating you over the head and getting preachy. It's a tough line to walk and burn yeah, walks Yeah, he does well. an exceptionally good job. Alicia's got a gorgeous apartment. Being a sculptress obviously mm-hmm. pairs well in New York. Yeah, with a Fantastic Four-themed artwork on well, the wall. She is very well-renowned, though, isn't she? So she's probably, one would imagine, she she's, is, she's yeah. like Banksy. She's somebody that person on the street would know if they said, name an artist in the Marvel Universe, and Tracy Emin or somebody like that. So she's probably at that level. So she probably does earn a decent wage, and she has got a lovely apartment, particularly like her open fire. Oh, yeah. Mm, nice touch that she doesn't have a TV, although a lot of blind people do have televisions, don't they? Just for the background noise. Maybe Alicia listens to the radio. Yeah. Yeah, and this was before the secondary audio programming yeah. era. Yeah, so that so. does make sense. Uh, she's, she's sculpted a She-Hulk figure, because She-Hulk is now a member of the Fantastic Four. She-Hulk looks pretty good. Sue's her is god-awful. 
absolutely dreadful. She's got like the same hairstyle as as the mullet poodle do of the uh, the teacher earlier on, except she's got a Superman kiss curl in the middle of her head. Oh, I don't wish yeah. to insult the the lovely reader if they're listening to this who who wrote in with this hairdo. Because if memory serves, he ran a competition to pick Sue's next hairstyle, and this is what won. But it's quite bad now, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's very dated. If I were to pick someone that we all know who's got that hairstyle, it would probably be MacGyver. <laughs> oh, Richard Dean Anderson will be in my dreams tonight. But it's it, it wouldn't surprise me if part of the reason it won the contest is because it's it's also unique enough that they could stand out and say, yes, you were the one submitter with this hairstyle. And I don't know how it was submitted. It could have been a photo of someone who's wearing that hair with a different shape of face and it yeah. works for. I mean, I always thought the best off, the, the, the thing they should have really been modeling Sue after was probably Sybil Shepherd in Moonlighting. And she never had a poodle do. No. But yeah, Sue's hair is absolutely terrible. Alicia looks great. She's got She's rocking the short hairdo at this moment, mainly because she had to have all of her shaved off when Annihilus attacked her in the Baxter building. And she had to have an operation. And She-Hulk just absolutely looks brilliant. I still think Byrne draws the best She-Hulk. Yeah, I I would argue that we She-Hulk would have been practically forgotten if not for Byrne's contributions mm. to her. And he's only taking what Roger Stern did in the Avengers with her, but he couple that with Byrne's visual of her, and it works much better. Not no disrespect to John Buscema, I think was drawing Avengers at that point, but Byrne's She-Hulk. Yeah, she's equally attractive and imposing. He never forgets that she's a very feminine yeah. woman, but at the same time, she's seven foot tall and green. So he 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 never yeah. forgets that, and you only have to look at the difference in size between her and Alicia in the previous panel. He always he always makes her larger than life within the scene, but she still feels like a real person. She just happens to be seven foot tall and green. Oh yeah, even if you look back to the the first three panels when we come to this apartment with She Hulk standing right behind Alicia, and Alicia's head is about the height of She Hulk's yeah. bust. And then the next two panels when you get the close ups of the faces, and Byrne gets criticized for drawing all women with the same face. These are three different faces, and She-Hulk just looks mm. stunning. I, I think that's an unwarranted criticism. I mean, on the one hand, he's drawing superhero fiction, and there is a very limited amount of heroic faces. You know, I mean, Jim Aparo's Batman looks mm-hmm. exactly like Jim Aparo's Superman. Nobody seemed to criticise Jim Aparo for it. Whereas Byrne does at least attempt, like George Perez, he does at least attempt to give people different facial structures, different cheekbones, different shapes of the chin... No, maybe early on his career, that was a valid criticism. But by this point, he's making a conscious effort to make people look different. And by and large, he does a pretty good job of it. The true test is, does this read in black and white? And can you still tell who they are? And I think he does a great job with the faces in this. Sue and Johnny look enough like to be brother and sister, but she's not a female version of him. And Alicia doesn't look like mm-hmm. She-Hulk. Maybe the noses are quite similar. No. But for the most part, yeah. Yeah, it's, if anything, I think that criticism might be because... Byrne puts a lot of detail into the eyes and mouth, but when it comes to the nose and cheekbones, he kind of leaves that for the width of the face that he's drawn. So there may be some similarities just because the same regions of the face are absent of lines, right? If, if you look at Alicia and Sue in the bottom of that page, there appears to be some similarity, partly because the faces are small. It's really the hair that sets them apart. But you know what? We've also got about 70 years of Archie comics <laughs> that suffer the same issue with Betty and yeah. Veronica. For decades, the difference between them was the hair. And Gwen and Mary Jane. Although Ramita did yeah. a pretty good job of making Mary Jane distinct from Gwen. Speaking of the 80s, though, the Beyonder shows up. And he's Lionel Richie, isn't he? 
He's got he's got the suit yeah. on. Oh gee, God. Oh. He's got the the sleeves of the suit jacket rolled up. He's got a tie on, but it's not fastened with the collars of the shirt up. And it's like he's either been watching Miami Vice or Lionel <laughs> Richie videos, and this is what the Beyonder has decided to model himself on. Oh, yeah. Don't forget the large silver watches on both <laughs> hands. Oh yeah, flever flev. Which, yeah. <laughs> One of those rock star things to have the time for, e- for each coast, because, you know, adding and subtracting three is tough when you're hot. <laughs> but he's got the Lionel Richie curls going on as well. Oh, yes. <laughs> I just imagine he's watched MTV and thought, that's how I want to dress. <laughs> and nobody's told him, no, no, that's how they dress on MTV, dude. It's not how they dress in real life. <laughs> but hey, there we go. There's the... Uh... There's the reprint solution solved. You change a couple of panels of dialogue to talk about when Reed gave Lionel Richie a teleporter and then just recolor <laughs> Lionel him. Richie has showed up to help Johnny stop. Oh, I love that idea more than the Watcher. <laughs> Lionel Richie, time-traveling superhero. Oh, get that spin-off published. Oh, dear me. She-Hulk tries to put him in a chokehold and they just disappear. Yeah, it's the only issue I really have with the Beyonder here, which is one that really stands out if you read it as I originally did in the Secret Wars 2 Omnibus. Actually, I guess that was my second read-through, because first I read through all the Fantastic Four in chronological order when the DVD-ROM came out. And then the second read time reading it was in the Fantas- or the Secret Wars 2 Omnibus. And at this point in Secret Wars 2, I don't think the Beyonder would have cared enough about anyone else. He was still trying to figure things out. I don't see him choosing to take this active hand. Yeah, well, that's that's like you've already discussed. The the Beyonder was forced on him in this issue. And according to Byrne, and Byrne's recollections of this are tinged with his absolute dislike of Jim Shooter. And you, you go on, if you go on his frequently asked questions things, he, he really doesn't like Shooter for whatever reason. So you always have to take what he's saying and colour it with that perception. But he has said he went to him mm-hmm. and said, look, I'll put him in the issue before this. I'll put him in the issue after this. Can I leave this one alone? And Shooter was just hardline, no, that's the Secret Wars 2. And he says that's one of the reasons that ultimately he had the big falling out with him that led him to go to DC, was that he was just so unmovable when it came to Secret Because Secret Wars sold so well, when Secret Wars 2 came along, Shooter was, well, I know what I'm doing because it sold well, so you'll just do as I say. And there was no flexibility with him. So, yeah, the characterization of the Beyonder doesn't really fit with the characterization of the Beyonder in Secret Wars 2. And you can quite easily see that he intended this to be the Watcher. Because this is the kind of thing the Watcher would do. Because he's not really interfering here. He's just easing Johnny's pain a little bit. He's not changing anything. Yeah, he would, for the Fantastic Four, the Watcher would do this. Yeah, I'm not saying he'd just rock up and do this for Speedball. But for Johnny, he would make the effort. Well, Speedball didn't have his powers yet, so we'll forgive him for that. (laughs) And he hadn't wiped out half of wherever he wiped out. Stanford, Connecticut, I believe. Uh, So yeah, so the the Beyonder takes Johnny on a mystical, magical mystery tour of uh, young Tommy's life. And again, the the top panel that is the page of the home shows that they have quite an upper-class lifestyle. And it's a brilliantly detailed panel, isn't it? Absolutely gorgeous panel. They've got Lex Luthor's chair. That big leather chair with the arms, uh, Lex Luthor has that in Superman. Were they big in the 80s, that kind of chair? Yeah, yeah, they kind of were. At least they, they were the upscale, new, shiny right, thing. because Lex Luthor has one. Yeah, it's the yuppie status right, symbol. So, well, that's obviously what he's going for. 
And Johnny's bedroom, there's some lovely little touches in there. Johnny, sorry. Timmy's bedroom. Not Timmy, that's Timmy Harrison. See, I'm mixing up my kid who collected Spider-Man with this. They've even got similar names. So there you go. Anyway, Tommy's bedroom is just wall-to-wall human torch posters. But there's lovely little touches, like he's got a Fantastic Four jacket, which I presume readers marketed, and a little model of the Fantastic Mm -hmm. Cast on his bookshelf. Fantastic Car, not the Fantastic Cast, which I thought was a lovely little touch. I would have liked to see a Herbie the Robot in here, a little model of Herbie, a little Herfix model. That would be cool. Oh, but then he'd get that bloke from upstairs to mm-hmm. actually fuel propel it, wouldn't it? That would be bad. No, forget that. Yeah, well, maybe he doesn't have one because he already tried it with yeah, that guy. that's true. I love Tommy's big digital watch. That's yep. absolutely gorgeous because it covers half of his forearm because he's, he's only a little fella. Yeah, and the, the digital watches were still fairly large mm. at this point, especially since half of them were transforming. <laughs> this is really nice of the Beyonder to actually try and do this for Johnny, which again does play into what you were saying, that... The Beyond probably wouldn't care, but it's still a nice scene, and it's him helping Johnny realise that you didn't do this. This isn't your fault, and mm-hmm. it's 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 even very well written because that's not really something you could say about the Beyonder most of the time. No, but this is quite heartfelt and touching, and it's it's a very low key issue, but it's it's very affecting, and the fact that it still works what thirty odd years later. Is it's quite a testament mm-hmm. to Burns' run on the Fantastic Four, which I still think is arguably his best comics work. Oh yeah, yeah. It's especially as as writer and penciler, this is Burns' best. You could make a case that his collaboration with Claremont it is in there, but I think Byrne works best when he's got the freest hand. He's just that kind of creator where he likes to do his own thing, which could be a big part of the issues with Shooter that he's got because Shooter has he's got a reputation for being one of the most hands-on editors. He still allows and facilitates people to create their own stories, but Shooter was known compared to other editor-in-chiefs for also having the most input in, okay, this has to be in the story to keep the universe lined up together. And partly because Shooter's era was one of the first ones that really started to heavily feature crossovers as sales points. But it's also hard to argue with his results. Early to mid-80s Marvel is probably the most consistently good they were across the line since the 60s. Jim Shooter's early run, mm-hmm. there was not a bad book being published at Marvel in 1982, 1983. You could pretty much pick up any Marvel comic and be entertained by it, because I was. There was nothing truly... Even Dazzler was readable and enjoyable. Byrne may have his, his issues with him, but for the first half of his tenure as editor-in-chief, Marvel was the best it had been in over 10 years. Yeah, I would agree with that. There have been a couple of times where I've read... You know, I've read, with the help of those Get Corp DVD ROMs, I've read every issue of Fantastic Four in sequence. I've read every issue of Incredible Hulk in sequence. And even if you don't read the credits, when you're reading them compressed like that, you can see when editors change. And especially editor-in-chief, there was a different tone. And as I said, he started to have more crossovers, which meant a more interconnected universe and a more coherent universe. You, know, you weren't getting cases like, you know, in the 60s, they'd get star in each other's books, but half the time it would be you know, bumping into Captain America on the street in, you know, in Spider-Man, but, you know, over in Avengers, they're on a different planet. Mm. They, they didn't necessarily jive that well. Whereas the shooter era is the first one where they started to really figure out how to fit the pieces together across the line, not just, you know, we had some of that in the 70s in the Spider-Man books when there's one writer doing Amazing Spider-Man, Peter Parker, Spectacular Spider-Man, and Marvel Team-Up. 
And when one guy's doing them all, it's a little bit easier for him to say, yeah, here's how the jigsaw pieces fit together. Boom, but here we were getting really cool stuff like, who's this guy who's Iron Man now? And they would just say, go and pick up Iron Man. And that made you go, and go. Mm-hmm. all right, well, I'll go and pick up Iron Man. What's happening to Tony Stark? And this was in the middle of the whole Obadiah Stane thing where he bought Stark out. So there's lots of little touches like that that did make you go and pick up other books. So it worked. Mm-hmm. It never felt as oppressive as it perhaps gets today where cross titles are labelled part one of two. Except maybe the X books when you started getting Uncanny X-Men and X-Factor and New Mutants. And then you started getting... Mm-hmm. It got to the point where because Clermont was writing them all, you kind of had to read them all. Yeah, there was a, a lot of crossover. It's not... It wasn't to the level it was in the 90s where you had four Spider-Man books that were really... yeah one Spider-Man book with rotating creative teams on each issue, right? They would just do every fourth issue just to help meet the schedules. Well, we, we cut back to Janet at the end, and then we get a shot of, a hero yeah. shot of the Human Torch. And I think that's the only place we had an issue with it, isn't it? The very last line, I think Tommy would say, this had a happy ending. And I'm like, really? <laughs> yeah. I, I think Tommy would have preferred it if the Human Torch came to visit him. And then Tommy had a full recovery <laughs> having met the Human Torch. Yeah. That would have been a happy ending if Reed had come in with some gizmo he has in his back pocket and uh, cured him of his burns. That would have been a happier ending for poor Tommy. As it yeah. currently stands, Tommy's yeah. dead. But it's a, it's a good issue for us as a reader. It is. So just going through what we've already, what we usually talk about each for each of these, I've already talked about how I first read this, first on the DVD-ROM and then in Secret Wars 2. And I, I believe you were... Were you reading the, the John Byrne run as it was coming yeah, out? Yeah, I bought this off the stands. I bought yeah. this new off the stands. I was re- I started reading Burns FF. Oh, God. I think I've said this before, and I think it was Childhood's mm-hmm. End, which was the issue where Sue returns to the Baxter building on her own, and the rest of the FF have been wiped out, and she has to find out who's done it, which is another excellent issue. I think that was my first issue of Fantastic Four. I'd have to wrap my brain and think of an okay. earlier one. I can't remember if I mentioned that before, but I think that, that was my first issue. And I backtracked from there and carried on reading from there. So I filled in all the gaps from the Burn stuff. And then prior to that with Marv Wolf and stuff and carried on reading from that point. So yeah, I picked this up off the stands brand new and it's I've still got that copy. And it's a, an absolutely brilliant issue. It is one of those stories that even when you read it as a kid, you close it at the end of it and go, oh, that was a bit of a downer for an issue of the Fantastic Four. <laughs> But it's it's such a lovely story. It's so well written. You do actually feel for Johnny. Because even though it's about Tommy, it's a human torch story. And it's how it affects Johnny. Yeah. And there's also a part of me that's glad that it's never been mentioned again. Or hopefully it's never been mentioned again. Because you can imagine that today they would bring these parents back and engage in some big lawsuit against the Fantastic Four. No, it's, it's one of those cases where, I mean, at least as a reader... I don't think you should revisit a past story and try to adjust it unless you are very, very sure that you're going to improve on it. And there's very little from Burns' run where you can say that. Mm. Right? It's like, you know, when they brought Barry Allen back from the dead in Final Crisis, that didn't sit right with me because I felt Crisis on Infinite Earths gave him a much better death than the return he got in Final Crisis. Mm. On the flip side, I was very happy with the way Jeff Johns and Ethan Van Skyver brought back Hal Jordan because I think Green Lantern Rebirth was a much better story than Emerald Twilight. I th- does a lot of that play into, though, how Hal was written out as well? That he wasn't given a big heroic yeah. death like Barry was given. And a lot of people had a very sour taste in mm-hmm. the mouth about how Hal Jordan was written out. Yeah, he was not written out well. <laughs> and that's part of the reason I welcomed someone rewriting that to bring them back. You know, we also like to address the impact this had on, 
on us or on the industry. I would say that if you read this, it'll have the impact. You feel the emotional weight of both what Tommy and Johnny are dealing with as you go through this issue. In terms of the the industry and the comics, with the industry, it might have been a, a milestone to prove that, yes, you can write these small non-combat stories, right? You don't need big action pieces to have a really good comic. It wasn't the first to do that, but it's got to be added to the pile of successful comics mm. that fit that form. But as you said... As far as I know on continuity, they haven't touched on this again. Everyone's had enough respect to say it works on its own. We don't want to revisit this. We cannot improve upon it. We cannot bring these parents back in any meaningful way. I mean, the only way I could see for them to bring it back is if, you know, they had shown up at Stanford during Civil War and said, you know what? We've been through something similar. We eventually learned to accept it's not their fault. Mm. Right. I mean, there the New Warriors were being reckless. I'm with Wolverine. It's Nitro that chose to blow himself up. And it's natural it should have the lion's share of the blame for that. Yeah, yeah. I don't want them to touch this. I think it's its impact more on me than on the industry generally. Is it such a memorable single issue in an era where you can probably remember story beats more than single issues? You remember the malice stuff from Burns Run, or you remember them knocking Galactus down and all of that—the fight with Gladiator. But what you've got here is an actual single issue that is distinctly memorable and a fact. If it wasn't a Secret Wars 2 crossover, it would probably still be memorable. And I, there's, a, there's a part yeah. of me that's quite sad that it's just lumped in with the rest of Secret Wars 2, which by and large is pretty bad. Yeah, yeah, that's... Uh, it's not one of my favourite eras. No, the, the latter half of Jim Shooter's era is a very much a fall from grace. <laughs> you know, Secret Wars 2's not very good, and... He starts being very heavy-handed with his editorial mandates, by all accounts, leading to Mike Carlin quitting. That's why Mike Carlin went to DC as well, and he was trying to take Mark Gruenwald with him. But ultimately, Mark Gruenwald passed away. It's, it's a great single issue. It's, it's very affecting. It's still touching. It's still well-written. It's still got great art. It's a brilliant comic, just full stop. It's single issue. It's done in one everybody's in it, but they don't really get a lot to do because it's a Johnny Storm story. Mm-hmm. I would not I would have liked this top 75 to be more of these than the first appearance of. Because just because something's a first appearance of, don't make it any good. This is good. This is a good comic. This is a comic from the era you could give to people mm-hmm. who don't read comics and go, look, this is what they are in a lot of cases. Not always, but sometimes. And this is worth, this is worthwhile. This is literature. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is something where you can hand it to someone and they they mm. get it. I mean, one of the things that we do in these podcasts is to run through the section that I blatantly stole from Mission Log, <laughs> where we look for messages, morals, and meanings. Oh, would you want to begin? Are in here parental neglect? Oh yeah. Don't set yourself on fire. Uh, hero worship. Yeah. Bullying. Empathy. Should the teachers have perhaps been more empathic mm-hmm. to to the young lad than they perhaps were? I still think her throwing that magazine in the bin in front of him was quite cruel. Yeah, especially knowing how he felt about the Human Torch. Yeah, and she does try and bring that back later, but she still chucked it away. But yeah, there's there's an awful lot in here about hero worship, personal responsibility, parental neglect. There's a lot to chew on this beyond the surface storyline as well. Yeah, and from Johnny's perspective, if you look at what Johnny learned, it's there are some things that are out of your control and you cannot blame yourself for what happens. And more importantly, there are some things that are out of your control that aren't big cosmic disasters. There are little yeah. things like this that you have no idea is going on, and you are not to blame for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very much an issue with life in the public mm. eye. 
which still works works probably better now. We're a lot more media savvy. We've got entire personalities that have built their entire career about being in the public eye rather than specific talent, whereas Johnny has at least saved the world. So yeah. this whole public eye thing probably is, is more applicable now than it was in 1985. Oh, yeah. I'm, I mean, a lot of it came out of here. It's a different issue in Burns Run addresses paparazzi pretty much. Yeah, on. yeah, the She-Hulk issue. Yeah, which again says a lot about Burns Run because when we're talking the She-Hulk issue, could you could have made an argument that that would make the list. Yeah. Again, a strong done in one. The issue where Sue loses her child frankly surprises me that it's not yeah, on the list. Yeah, that is, a, that is, and that's a brilliant ending to that one as well, where the Doctor just tells Reed that she's lost the baby and it's just big, thick black border and a tiny panel in the middle of the page. That's a great ending. That's, that's one of the things about this list that has got under my skin a little bit is who decided that you could put the entire run of New Mutants on this, but only one issue here of Burns' run. Although there is, there is another one in the trailer, Reed Richards, which we did. Mm-hmm. So, but who decided that? I think that's why I, I, I don't take this list entirely seriously. And I don't think it's the be-all and end-all. Because how can you say all 75 issues of New Mutants deserve to be here, but all of Clermont and Burns' X-Men doesn't? Yeah, it's... I mean, the New Mutants was one of the few cases where there's a whole run. The Steranka run of Nick Fury, I think, is a stronger case because the story structure there was, by and large, much more serialized. Mm. So it really does read like one giant story, whereas the New Mutants reads like a series of stories. So that's one where I think it really should have pulled out story arc by story arc. And even the Clone Saga. The initial press release. Go on. Yeah. Yeah, the initial press release did open it up for whether you want it to be single-issue stories or anything like that. I actually think I even forwarded you guys the at the Fantastic Cast the announcement that, yeah, when the votes are in, we're going to be building an omnibus out of this. <laughs> an omnibus with all of these in. How did that go for them? Uh, well, the omnibus is out, but it certainly doesn't have all the stories. <laughs> yeah, just having the entire clone saga in one omnibus would be too much. The omnibus actually has Fantastic Four number 1, 48 to 50, and 285. So this made the omnibus. Hulk 1, Avengers 1 and 57, Amazing Spider-Man 31 to 33, 50 and 121 to 122, Incredible Hulk 181, which we haven't discussed yet, but I believe that's one of the ones that Andrew was alluding to <laughs> when he said that, you know, sometimes we get poor issues that are first appearances. Yeah, that so-and-so. is not a good comic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Giant Size X-Men number 1, X-Men 141 and 142. There's a future past, yeah. Yeah. Daredevil 181. See? Uh, Marvel Graphic Novels number one and five. So is that the New Mutants contribution? Marvel Graphic Novel number five? New Mutants was number four. Number All five right. is X-Men God Loves All Man right, Kills. All right, so New Mutants didn't... The New Mutants Graphic Novel's not in there. Right. Nope. Thor 337 made it. Marvel's number one. X-Men Alpha. Thunderbolts won. The uh, 9-11 tribute issue of Amazing Spider-Man. First issue of Ultimates. The Captain America 25 following Civil War. The Pizza Dog issue of Hawkeye. Part of Captain America Comics number one, Amazing Fantasy 15, and Amazing Spider-Man 248 and, and 700. Right, see, because the, the only one there I would argue the complete storyline is Ultimates. Ultimates number one on its own is not a satisfying read. You need all 12, or at the very least, the first six issues. Yeah, well, uh, this episode is being recorded before we release the issue of Ultimates, but that's exactly what Stephen Layson and I decided to do. So we covered all 13 and figured... Yeah, the poor intern who had to tabulate those free-form votes by email just misunderstood what people were voting for. That, that, that That's very reasonable, yes. Yeah, but that's what we have, so... And in case you hadn't guessed, I think we've 
essentially described why it landed at this point in the rankings. It's just, this is an extremely well done issue. It is entertaining, it is compelling, and it can make you sit down and question things about the way you you may be living your life. And that's a heck of a lot to do in, what, 24 mm-hmm. brightly colored pages? Of gaudy periodical, which is how the Beyonder describes it. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's not many that will do everything on that list, but this is one of yeah. them. It's it's a great comic. It, I'm I'm glad it made the list because it shows that the list isn't just stacking the votes in the favor of certain certain vocal fans. <clears throat> Clone Saga or first appearances or deaths. And I'm not saying the night Gwen Stacy died isn't an important story or Captain America showing up in Avengers number four. That's an important story. I don't necessarily think it's the best issue of the Avengers. And the same with this. This is just a really good single issue story and i'm i'm very glad that this made the list yeah as am i unless you have did you have any closing thoughts no just that reading it for this last night because to peek behind the curtain slightly we hadn't quite decided what we were recording so i had to read two issues before we decided what we were doing and reading this last night i was i was genuinely gobsmacked by not only how well it held up but how even with the 80s her which we've had a great deal of fun taking the mick out of but how affecting it still was, and how touching it still was 30 years later. It's it's one of mm-hmm. Burns' best single issues in a run that is absolutely fantastic from Burns' point of view. There's a reason that the Fantastic Four has become much revered as being the best since Lee and Kirby. I mean, and I don't agree that there was nothing of note in between Kirby leaving and Burns taking over, but at the same time, I can understand why this has been held up as it has, because this is just one example of, of the great run that Byrne did on it at that time. Yeah, I would agree with all of that. Including that there's you know there's good stuff between the Lee Kirby run and mm. this one. As uh, listeners at home will learn if they listen to the Fantastic Cast, because you guys are in that era now. Pretty early in that era. Yeah, Stan's in. still writing it, but uh, he will be gone soon, yeah. and then you're into Roy Thomas and Jerry Conway, and, and my personal favorite bit, Luke Cage coming on the team. Which I just love. I love Luke Cage. Yeah, I believe he's in there for a couple yeah, of issues. Yeah. So. Very good he is too. Yep, and the new Warriors fan in me is looking forward to when you get the chance to wrap up the story that Nova couldn't finish in his own book. <laughs> yeah. Alright, so Andy, thanks again for yeah, joining no us. And for those of you listening along at home, next week we will be reading Captain America 25. That's the 2004 volume, the one that immediately followed Civil War. And that's been reprinted in Captain America by Ed Brubaker, Omnibus, the Captain America, Death of Captain America, Volume 1, Hardcover Trade Paperback. Spoilers. <laughs> Civil War Chronicles number 12, Captain America, The Death of Captain America, Omnibus Hardcover, Marvel Digital Limited Comicsology, and the Marvel 75 Greatest Stories Omnibus that we mentioned earlier today. So please feel free to rate the show on iTunes and on Stitcher. It does help us get noticed. You can join the Facebook discussion forum to talk about the stories themselves. And please share links to the podcast with friends who you think may enjoy it. And finally, thank you for listening.